0: Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. I'm really grateful to have another opportunity to speak with Dr. Sue Varma today. She is a board-certified psychiatrist, clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the NYU Langone Medical Center, and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Last time, we spoke about how to pick the right therapist for you. Today, we're delving into cultivating what she calls practical optimism. So when a lot of us think about optimism, we might either confuse it with toxic positivity, or we feel like it's just an innate trait that we either have or we don't. And we don't necessarily recognize the power it has to change our lives. But Dr. Varma wants us to recognize optimism as the key to protecting our mental health, hopefully allowing us to lead lives filled with joy and purpose, even in the face of life's biggest challenges. Her approach is firmly rooted in research from psychology, psychiatry, medicine, and neuroscience, and informs her new book, Practical Optimism, The Art, Science, and Practice of Exceptional well being So what exactly is practical optimism, and how can we practice it in our everyday lives? Welcome back to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Varma.
1: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be talking to you again. I'm very thankful that you're having me back to talk about practical optimism.
0: I am too. And before we jump into my questions about your approach and the pillars you talk about, I'd love to just get a sense from you because you talk about this, your lived experience in discovering the power of practical optimism. How did you sort of approach your own learnings from your own lived experience to develop this framework?
1: Yes. So it's kind of been there throughout my life, looking at sort of key influences. And in the book I talk about, and my parents is one of them. But it also, I want to say, came from my own personal journey of experiencing challenge and setbacks and not finding that our current approach was robust enough in the sense that so much of western medicine and psychiatry is focused on treatment of illness and diseases and i was more interested in how do we prevent them and then when i went on professionally to work with survivors of 9 11 there was a lot of emphasis on resilience and so i went deep into the literature on resilience and learned that optimism was one of the key features and a lot of people might say well optimism i mean you're either born with it or not with this outlook of glass half empty or half full. And that doesn't serve anyone. This idea that resilience or optimism, you either have it or you don't. So much of what I'm interested in is how do we teach people life skills? And that's what I learned in the research done on optimism, which is a few things. One is, yes, optimism is genetic, but only 25% of it is. And 75% of it is what you cultivate, learn, skills, mindset approaches that you can change. And what I learned is that actually the genetic component of optimism, which is the oxytocin receptor gene, and we know that oxytocin is a cuddle bonding hormone Mm -hmm. between mother and baby during orgasm, during friendship, hugs, cuddling, it actually relates to skills and Those are things that we can learn. So the next sort of phase of my professional life and career then became focused on the things that we have control over. And so as we kind of jump into that, why spend the time
0: to cultivate it? So I get that, you know, 25% of it is genetic and that we have control over that 75%. So why spend the time when there's so many life skills that we struggle to acquire What is the basis? What's the scientific basis? What are the benefits of cultivating optimism?
1: So really, when I talk about cultivating exceptional mental wellness, it's seen through the lens of optimism of who these people are, who might be naturally gifted in this way. But it really comes down to the best practices and the evidence behind what is good mental health. And good mental health, some of us are born with it in the sense that we are not only able to bounce back from adversity, which is what resilience is, but also that we're able to thrive in the face of it, which is what flourishing is. And to me, optimists do both. They are able to handle hardship and able to bounce back. And they have the skills to cope with what is happening negatively in their life. And here's the interesting thing. That optimists and pessimists don't somehow have a different amount of negative life events happening to them. It's not as if pessimists go through a lot worse than optimists do. They have the same number of negative life events. It's the approach that makes you one or the other. When the same negative life event happens, do you have a tendency to take it personally? Do you have a tendency to see the negative thing as being pervasive in all aspects of your life? Do you take the negative thing as being personal and permanent, that it's never going to change? And then as a result, do you become passive? And this is based on the work, The Three P's of Pessimism. I've added a fourth one. Dr. Martin Zligman, talks about pessimism and how it is a sort of downward spiral that then leads to depression. So when you ask the question, why do you want to not be depressed? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to have friends? Do you want to be wealthier, healthier, more successful? And these are all of the benefits of cultivating optimism, which really just comes down to practicing certain key emotional regulation skills, key interpersonal skills, key stress management skills, and all of which then helps you not only deal with the stress and the negativity, it brings you back to baseline. But what I'm focused on is getting people beyond baseline and functioning at their optimal. I realized that I was helping my patients go from depressed to, quote, undepressed, go to a baseline, was actually, after they reached their baseline, was helping them then go even beyond. And that's what I'm focused on is, I feel like it is our responsibility to help our patients live their best life. And I don't think that that's how I viewed the system when I first started training. It was like, let us get them back to their baseline. The question is, what was your baseline? And how did your baseline get you to the state of dysfunction? And often when patients say, I just want to go back, I ask them, go back to what? Right? Because that is what got you here in the first place.
0: I think that that's just such an important discussion to have, especially now as we are really thinking about the mental health crisis in our children, in adolescents, in really throughout the lifespan, people just struggling with these skills to maintain. I love what you're saying, not just a baseline, but to optimize so that when you face life's challenges, you are already starting from really a place of strength.
1: Yes, yes. And we need you to know, think of like a bank, you know, when we think of our bank account, it's like, sure, you can have just enough reserve to meet your day to day needs. But what happens is, God forbid, there's a crisis and you need to dip in for something unanticipated. Right. So like if there's a problem with the roof or problem with the car. Right. So there's maintenance that's involved. And I want people to have enough in their emotional reserves so that they can handle not just the day to day, but all of the life's unexpected challenges, which inevitably will come. You know, none of us are going to escape life without tragedy, hardship, grief, disappointment.
0: So what are some of the sort of skills and the techniques that you're hoping to encourage that we focus on in our day to day lives? In the eight
1: pillars, I start with having a purpose and that purpose can be a big P as in what is the existential purpose of my life? What am I here to do? Who am I here to serve? And service, believe it or not, is one of our most important resources and not tapped into enough. So when you do a kind gesture for somebody else, and it's recently came out in a study, it's like the benefit is not really just to the other person. It is to you very much. And we don't realize that because so much of depression takes us inward and I talk about this in a later pillar in the pillar of being present is that rumination or the self-referential thoughts where it is all about us and it's about, oh my God, I suck as a person or we become very self-conscious where it's about our life and the circular inward thinking is a journey to depression. When we come out and we are focused on giving back, when we are focused on our skills and hobbies and talent and how they can make impact, which is all I, what I talk about in purpose, the big P, That is when we're going to be happiest. We are happiest when we're in a state of flow. And what a state of flow is, is this creative space where you lose track of time, you're fully engaged in an activity, and everybody's flow state is going to be different. Somebody might say it's playing video games. My husband and my kids say it's when they're skiing. It could be when you're cooking. It could be when you're gardening. For me, it's when I'm writing. It's when I'm speaking. So each of us have different hobbies when we lose track of time. But what's interesting is what happens in the brain is that there's a quiet in the default mode network, which is that ruminating self-referential when your brain isn't focused on attacks. So literally you can't be in a flow state and also be ruminating. And having a sense of purpose decreases your mortality rates. They followed people for eight and a half years and those who had a sense of purpose were 30% less likely to die from any cause, but also less likely to have heart attacks and strokes. We find that a sense of purpose in children and adolescents decreases inflammation in the body and that this prevents later illness later on in life. That's just one of the eight pillars. But each of these pillars are basically, I looked at all of the science of everything that we can do that is in with our control and then give people tangible, actionable steps. How do you create that balance between this sense of purpose
0: Versus just being like just keeping yourself busy almost to stop the ruminations and these thoughts. When is it healthy? When is it not? I guess is what I'm getting at.
1: You know, there's two things. One is so much of our busyness, at least for like how we are overscheduling young people these days, is about this external metric of success. And it's coming at the expense of their mental health, this need for achievement. So when I suggest purpose, I say do something and I talk about this in the four M's of mental health, one of which are mastery, is do something for no one else other than yourself, that it gives you joy. It gives you pleasure. It makes you a little bit better at something. You don't have to be a master. But the point is that it's just for you and for your own benefit. So that's one way so that we don't get overscheduled for the purpose of success and external validation. Then the other part of your question is about how do we not just do you know, what we call either monkey mind or busy work to avoid having to sit with our thoughts. There's a study that showed that people will go through any length to not have to sit alone and quiet with their thoughts to the point that they will administer themselves an electric shock, a small electric shock. Given the choice of sitting someplace for 10 or 15 minutes unoccupied or shocking themselves, they chose to hurt themselves. I remember a patient telling me about a woman that she knew who would keep the radio and the TV and there was always had to be noise on, even in the shower, so that she didn't feel alone. And that's the other thing is that we are feeling, we're all experiencing a loneliness crisis. And to me, that says that we're devoid in deep and meaningful connections so that we feel that we either can't be alone in life or we can't be alone with our thoughts because our thoughts are scary. I feel like if we could give a home and a space to our thoughts to be like, Yes, they exist. Yes, they are sometimes negative. But just the way at an airport, when we're picking up our luggage, if there are other people's luggage on a conveyor belt, we notice them, we observe them. We don't take other people's luggage home. We don't invest too much thought into opinion about how ugly the luggage is or how pretty it is. We notice it. We observe it. That's what mindfulness does. One of the other of the four M's is being observant, acknowledging the negative emotions and saying, okay, I'm going
0: to create a home for you. We've talked about practical optimism in moments of crisis, but what about moments of joy and triumph? How does cultivating optimism also help us prepare to receive the very good as well as navigate the
1: challenging moments in life? That's such a great question because practical optimism really helps us on dealing with the struggle and strife by giving us life skills so that we can sort of feel afloat again and at the same time it helps us thrive because it allows us to feel deserving of the good things that we have created in our lives and that's what the practical part is about is that we don't expect things good things to fall into our lap if they do that's amazing and that's wonderful one of my favorite quotes is that luck is preparation met by opportunity And practical optimism helps you do both. It helps you be prepared, and it also helps you create opportunity. It's not saying that the opportunity is going to knock on your door. Sometimes it might. That's wonderful. But when you create the opportunities and you invest in the preparation, it allows you to then celebrate and says, you are deserving. You have created this amazing, beautiful life. So many times people end up becoming victim to what's called a rival fallacy. And they arrive at this amazing destination, the pinnacle, the peak of the mountain, the summit. And then they're like, now what? What else? And this hamster wheel, it drives us further and further to feel dissatisfied. We want more. Then we get FOMO. We're looking at other people's lives, this fear of missing out. And it says, you know what? The grass is greener where you water it. So water it here, watch the grass get green, these flowers bloom and see life flourish and enjoy what you are so deserving of. How can you
0: recognize where you're really sort of processing and allowing yourself to accept some negative thoughts without judgment? And you've sort of already explained this idea of toxic positivity, but I'd love it if you could give us a little bit more about that.
1: One thing that practical optimism isn't—it isn't toxic positivity. It's not asking someone to just look on the bright side of things without fully understanding, honoring, acknowledging all the grief and hardship that they've experienced in their life. So this is in no way saying rah rah, and you should just think on the bright side. It's allowing yourself space and time to grieve and to say, do I find myself? engaging in any number of avoidance behaviors as a result of what I've went through and being able to acknowledge my I have been through a lot and a lot of times people will never hear that validation until they go to therapy and then that therapist will say you didn't have an easy childhood and the person might be like well I had loving parents or they were still together they never got divorced right a wolf over my head I'm no one to complain other people have had it harder And I would say, stop doing the grief comparison. Stop comparing your life and your hardship with somebody else's. It's your story. Own it. And feel and allow yourself to give yourself some degree of validation. But if you find yourself doing any number of these, engaging in a lot of recreational substances to the point where maybe things have fallen off, if you find yourself binge eating, drinking, like mindlessness in any number of areas of indulgence or escapism on a regular basis. If you're experiencing unexplained physical symptoms, you've gone to a variety of specialists and no one can get to the source or you're fighting with loved ones or there's a lot of irritability, chances are there are unprocessed, unacknowledged emotions or things that need time and space and help perhaps even, professional help. And it can make such a difference even in a few sessions with a therapist that you feel gets you. But therapy can be life-changing even if it's not for a very long time.
0: Every time I talk to you, I always I love the conversation, but it does kind of just get me back to the core principle of primary care, too, which is you just have to trust yourself. And I love that you've allowed for this inventory to sort of look at these different pillars to create sort of an assessment in these different areas for places that you can work on, whether you are in a moment of joy or whether you're struggling That you can sort of on your own identify that something is not right. And if you don't feel that you are getting to the place where you want to be, that's it's absolutely important to bring that to the attention of your healthcare provider or to help find a therapist so that you can talk through some of these things. Because no one knows
1: you better. And the fact that you're not optimal than you. Yes. And that you can sort of in the privacy of your own home, do the inventory and take what, you know, I call like a snapshot or a selfie without anyone else's judgment to say this is interesting. Because that's so important is to have the ability to have insight, to reflect, which most of us, I hate to say, aren't doing as much as we need. You know, like it's so easy to scroll on our phones, devices, streaming. There's so many activities. I on one hand, I'm like, it's great that there's so many things to distract us and educate us and connect us to the outside world. But what's happening is two things. There's something called the shallowing hypothesis that in every way things have become more superficial. Our connections with other people, the way we read and process and take in information has gotten watered down. And I think even the way that we connect with ourselves, because we're not ever alone. If you have a device in your hand and you're looking at it, you are not alone. What do you hope readers
0: take away from your book, Practical Optimism?
1: I want readers to take away the fact that they have a lot more agency to change their lives than they think. And I talk about this in the chapter on practicing healthy habits, that 80% of our health is determined by our habits and only 20% or so is genetic. A lot of times people say, well, there's nothing I can do. My family biology predisposes me to XYZ. And that's the key is that it predisposes you, but it doesn't determine your fate. And I want to say that you have a lot more self efficacy, also, this belief in your own abilities, and that the belief in your own abilities is just as important sometimes, if not more than your actual abilities. And I'm not saying to be deluded and think that you're great at everything that you do. I just want you to know that take the time to develop skills and habits. And then you have to believe in yourself. And the combination of two will result in ultimate success. And really, that's what this book is about, is about exceptional wellness in every
0: aspect of your life. For the final question, just would love to get your thoughts on how do we put our individual sort of abilities to do an inventory on ourselves in the broader context of where we may live, work, play, love? How do we sort of allow ourselves to have some agency, but still recognize that as a society, there's probably things that we do need to work on. 100%. And I'm
1: so glad you brought that up because that was one of the biggest challenges, I want to say. Every pillar, every point, every data point, every tangible takeaway, I kept thinking to myself, there is always a broader context. How can I tell someone do X, Y, and Z when they're living in a world with so much bias, discrimination, injustice? And so I had to put a little author's note to say, I get it. I see you. I hear you. We are living in a most imperfect world in an imperfect time where there are so many challenges that are way above any of us and that are going to interfere and make our ability to practice practical optimism hard. And at the same time, I see you. I'm with you. I feel compassion for your situation. I have been there. I've been on the receiving end of a lot of these systemic challenges that we talk about. And I say that in order to fortify yourself, to feel stronger, to feel more resilient, you still need to invest in yourself. And very quickly, your investment in practical optimism will spread. It's infectious because you are creating resource and resilience and kindness and you're taking care of yourself. Your tank is full so that you can pour you know, into somebody else's cup. And it's this whole idea that when it comes to optimism and pessimism, it was never a matter of is the glass half full or half empty? It's not how we perceive it. It's the fact that we need to know that a glass is refillable. And that's what these eight pillars do with give you the strength, the capacity and the energy to build yourself so strong that your cup overflows and that you can then pour and then it becomes a community thing. Practical optimism can be practiced by people in institutions, in schools, in communities, and it really just makes you a kinder person. And that's what we need. We need empathy. We need compassion. And if we are struggling in the world on a societal level, it's because these things are declining. Well, thank you again for being with
0: us today, Dr. Varma. We've talked with Dr. Sue Varma about ways that we can bring practical optimism into our lives. I know that for myself, I'm also thinking about how I'm going to fill my cup so I can model these behaviors for the next generation in my home. So I just, again, really appreciate this conversation. To find out more information about Dr. Varma, visit drsuvarma.com, and we'll have that information in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Bhattak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.